0: In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Why? Why does God allow evil in the world? Why doesn't he just act? If we've not uttered those words ourselves... Surely we've wrestled with them in our own hearts and minds, certainly as believers, in light of the way that we see the world is. Let me first say that's okay. In fact, um, you're not alone, and it's not new. It's been around that question for so long, they developed an entire theological term for it, the problem of evil in the face of a good God, and that term's called theodicy. In theology that deals with all manner of those sorts of things. In Jesus' day, they wrestled with that as well. In fact, um, that's perhaps the reason for which Jesus tells this parable that we hear this morning. In their day, they believed that everything that was evil was embodied in the Roman Empire. It stood in juxtaposition to everything that God's people were called to stand for. It had dethroned God's kings. Their morals and values were in opposition to the law um, and any number and manner of things they could take issue about. And their expectation was that when the Messiah would come, he would come to reestablish God's kingdom and overthrow whatever embodiment of evil it may be, in this case the Romans or whatever manner of kingdom it might look like at that time. And they expected that the coming of the Messiah would reestablish the Davidic line and all things would be well. But, as we know, sadly, and as we'll unpack in a moment, um, that's not always the case. If we look at First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Kings, and most of the prophets, there were problems even with that system because of the human heart. So this morning, whatever comes to mind when you think of the problem of evil, whatever that looks like, whatever um, topics or whatever that might look like in your mind, um, we see an answer to why that is today. But Jesus, of course, does more than just say, well, here's why evil is still in the world today. Um, He, in fact, challenges those who listen to what their call may be in light of it and also leaves them with hope in the midst of it. So let's turn back to Matthew 13. To explore this, and as we go, um, I'd invite you if you have your Bible um, to kind of keep your finger on verse 37 because we'll flip back and forth. If you don't have your Bible, keep your bulletin handy um, because we'll kind of reference where Jesus unpacks all of the images of the parable as we go into it here. So in verse. 24. We're continuing in Matthew 13 with the agrarian parables of Jesus. He puts another parable before them and says the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. If we flip over to verse 37, we see the man who sows the good seed is the son of man, Jesus himself. And we see that the good seed in verse 37 and following, well in 38, sorry, Um, are the sons of the kingdom, and the field is the world. So that's helpful because the field is not, this is not a parable just to the people of God. It's about the nature and condition of the world as we find it. And then we read that um, while his men were sleeping, interestingly, we'll unpack this a little bit, we're never told who the men who are sleeping are. An enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And we turn over in verse 39, the enemy who sowed was the devil, and the weeds are the sons of the evil one. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. We'll pause there for just a moment. Lots in those opening three verses. In fact, we're not just going to jump to the answer of why the problem of evil, but I think to set this up is is a helpful premise for us to hold in mind before we tackle that question. Um, A first kingdom principle, if you will, Um, another theological term about the providence of God, and I think this is a helpful frame before we tackle the issue at hand. Um, The providence of God often is distilled down into God's providing for the world he's created, which is an oversimplification. Um, The providence of God also includes the way and manner in which he interacts with the world he's created, which kind of gets at the larger question of the problem of evil. And this is helpful, because as we look at this parable, um, it's helpful to note that Jesus explaining the parable, um, and even the sower, um, we see this quite early on, it's clear that none of this catches the sower off guard, even, even the, the manner of the enemy coming in, which will hold that for just a moment. Um, but I think what's helpful first and foremost to note, stating the obvious, you know this, is that the sower only sows good seed. The Son of Man, Jesus, only sows good seed. God does not create evil. God does not sow evil. God does not even abide with evil. In fact, it's only in the absence of the sower that evil comes in. Um, St. Augustine put it this way, which is a helpful image, as he did so many times in manner. Evil is merely only the absence of good. And he likened it to light and darkness. Um, If you go in to a room that's dark... Darkness isn't a material thing. It's just the absence of light. When you go and you turn on a light, it lightens the room, and darkness is gone. You can't, you can't find darkness in a material state other than just the absence of light. That was Augustine's point. And thus, you can't find evil except for in the absence of good. So then that raises a question, right? So why, where was God? In fact, it doesn't point to the fact that God is any less absent or not in control. In fact, all it does is point to that reality. Um, and so let's posit this a little bit, the, the men who are sleeping, um, when the sower has sown the good seed in the soil, um, we don't know what the image of sleeping is. It could be lethargy, it could be apathy, it could be any manner or n- number of things, right? Um, but it's only then that the enemy comes in and sows the the tares, or the wheat, or the weeds, excuse me, in this parable. And that's a helpful thing for us to think about, because in many ways, um, we think about that God creates us, all of humanity, in his image. And so in his providence, he gives us the ability to choose We have the ability to reason, we have the ability to to make choices, to interact with the world around us, and and if he negated that, it would negate the very way in which he created the world itself. And so if we look at this parable in that sense, the, the men who are sleeping are entrusted with the field of the master. They're entrusted with tending to that field. And so rather than swooping in at every moment to fix what they've done wrong, he's actually going to let them tend to the field. And they do a pretty poor job, um, at least as far as we can tell. They're not on watch. They're asleep. They're disengaged. They're not really present. And that's when the enemy comes in and sows the weeds in the midst of the wheat. And so I think this is a helpful thing. I know it's a little heady, but I think it's a helpful frame for us before we tackle the problem of evil itself because God had designed the world in a certain way, and he creates us with specific tasks and purposes. Part of that being made as an image-bearer of God, all of humanity is to reflect his image, which means we get to reason and think and choose and all those things we do on a daily basis. So to actually live into that, as God does, he actually lets us do that. And that's kind of both a a fearful and terrifying thing um, and also a wonderful thing if we think about it. I mean, at least as a parent, right? The idea of kind of the day will come when, when we have to kind of let them do their own thing. In a sense, God purposed that and actually lets us do that. And there are consequences for good or for ill as a result of that. And so we see this kind of as a frame. So um, what does that mean for us? I think not just to say, okay, that's great in and in a frame for the world. But if that's the case, then that means that we have a choice to make every single day. To be in God's image means we have to embrace that. So first, that means we embrace a relationship with God, which as we know, God did act. Um, We'll look at that in a moment. The whole reason the Son of God is standing before them telling this parable is because God did act. And in a way they didn't ever understand or comprehend in this moment. And we're only beginning to comprehend the totality of God's love for us and sending Jesus into the world so that things will be right. But we still have a choice, do we not, as to whether or not we embrace Jesus or not? And that's not just an escapism to to escape being, you know, part of the problem or part of the solution, but we're called to actually grow up into every way into him who is the head, Christ Jesus, to quote Paul a little later on in scripture, right? So the goal is not just to uh, escape uh, the, the not so fun part of the harvest at the end here, but that we're actually called to grow up to look like Jesus, which is what was lost in the fall. The ability to look like God, reflect God, to shine like the sun as this parable ends. And so that's a choice we're called to embrace, and that's a slow work. And in fact, that's what's going to take us back to the text to explore a little bit further, which both answers the problem of evil and gives us a bit of a challenge as well. So this is just a little bit of prelude to get some context, if you will. So we turn back uh, to verse 27. We see that the servants of the master of the house, when they awaken, quite literally, to the reality, um, as time passes, that the weeds are among the wheat, they want the master to act, and they're even willing to be a part of the solution. The servants come to the master of the house. "Master, didn't you sow good seed in the field? how then does it have weeds? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. So then the servants say to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. This is a pretty uh, radical thing that Jesus is doing. Remember the whole purpose of, in many sects within um, Judaism, the Pharisees being one of them, their idea is let's be part of the weeding. Let's give everyone a way in which We sort out good and evil, and it's tidy, and it's confined, and let's be a part of that solution. And those who don't live in God's will and way, we just kind of cast aside, and those who do are considered part of the wheat in this parable, and off we go. And Jesus says, not so fast. That's not how the kingdom of God is going to come. The Messiah that you're looking for doesn't step in and just mow down everything immediately. Why? Because in doing so, some of you might be lost. In fact, interesting fact in uh, In these images of wheat and weeds the particular weeds that would grow among the wheat Actually had deeper roots than the wheat the wheat themselves So to get them out you would certainly uproot the wheat as part of the process And if you did it too soon you'd lose part of the harvest in this analogy and so in that manner Jesus is saying um, something incredible about God himself, but also for those listening. And and what's incredible about God himself is this, that we don't wrap our minds around. They're wanting to say, okay, God, execute your judgment. And Jesus is essentially saying, if I do that, it's not going to look like what you hope it will. You can't just execute God's judgment on the things that we deem heinous and everything else is left off to the side, including parts of our own hearts and lives. If God's justice cannot abide in evil, that means anything in us as well. And so, as a result, God's justice is stayed by his mercy, which is not in juxtaposition or in conflict with that, but in perfect concert. Because in his mercy for a time, God is patient with us and with all of creation, not because he doesn't act, but because he chooses not to do so for our sake and for the sake of others. Because he knows that if he acts in his perfect justice, that can't negate certain things, but will deal with other things. It's either all or none. And so what we see is in this kingdom principle, the patience of God, which is active. When we think of patience, we kind of think as twiddling our thumbs, buying time, and that's not the case. In fact, what Jesus is essentially saying is that what we are called to embody in such patience is an active work, an active work as the parable ends, so that the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. They look more like the one they reflect. The wheat will grow up taller. It doesn't just happen overnight. We know that even if we plant things in our front yard. It's a slow work. So if we're going to look more like Jesus, first it comes by embracing him and that choice and through the waters of baptism, and then the good news is we don't have to try to go it on our own. The Holy Spirit resides in us, but there is a work in which we cooperate with the Holy Spirit to continue to grow up to look like him. So what does that look like? Let's say um, an area that we're growing, because it's a lifelong work, we can't just tackle it all at once. Um, We're going to work on anger, perhaps. And this is a a plug for Bible studies this fall. I hope you'll all be involved in one of those. Um, The manner in which we do Bible studies is not to give you a study guide to see what some brilliant mind wrote, but to give you some guiding questions through which you're going to engage God's text and then hopefully walk away with a self-assigned application. And so if we read a text, let's say it's Sermon on the Mount, and we're in this, you know, um, piece about uh, murder is not just uh, killing, but it's, it's the thoughts of our hearts. And we go, okay, so what, what's my takeaway there? Well, um, you know, I, I see there's a theme of anger. Okay, great. So hopefully the group asks a question like, so And what's your um, task going to be this week? Or what are you going to do with that? Well, I'm going to work on becoming less angry. Okay, that's great. What is that really going to look like this week? Well, I really get angry in, in traffic. Um, okay, good. That's a good start. So how are you, what are you going to do to avoid that? Well, I'm just not going to drive on the interstate this week. I'm going to take back roads because I know I can't do it. So, okay, great. So, next week your group gets back together. How did that go? We went great on Monday morning and I was late, late the rest of the week, so I just botched it. Okay, great. No guilt or shame. How can we support you this week? Pray for me. That's the work we're called to do. If you checked wheat every single day, you wouldn't see the growth. But, remember the old adage, you know, we we had family that has a farm, and it was knee-high by the 4th of July, right? I mean, you can't measure it at every inch along the way, but when you look, you can see discernible growth over a period of time. That's what we're called to. It's a slow work, but it is a holy work, and one that we are called not to just escape the end result, but so that we might be in full stature and maturity at that time, and that's where the text ends, does it not? In verse 30, God's patience has a fixed date. Not that he's not patient beyond that, but it does reach a conclusion in verse 30. Let them grow up until the harvest. And at that time, at the harvest time, I'll tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them into bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. And we flip over and we see that the reapers are not these these same workers, but they're the angels. And for those listening... The manner in which this will be dealt with, gather the weeds first to be burned, and then gather the wheat into my barn, would communicate something pretty specifically to them. Because even if they themselves were not farmers, they were in a culture, they knew what what happened. And this isn't the way you harvested. When you harvested, in those days, you'd have a sickle, you'd cut everything down, and you'd take it to the threshing floor. We see that in the Old Testament and in other places. The threshing floor, for, for lack of a better image, would be like an open-air pavilion, perhaps, in our, in our mind. Um, and the wind could blow through. It was very uh, unscientific, but highly effective. They'd toss, you know, not way up high, but they'd toss it all into the air. And just like when the wind blows through your freshly cut lawn, the, the lighter weeds or grass or whatever it might be will, will be kind of whisked away maybe a few feet, and the heavier wheat would drop in place. And so then you could gather it up. So Jesus is saying, we're not going to do that. The reaper is going to come in and execute judgment and gather all the weeds first to be burned, and then the wheat will be gathered in my barn. You want justice, it will come. And it will come in a way that you can't even imagine because in your minds, that's not even possible. But I'll do it. But in my timing. So let them grow until the harvest. So God's promise to us (laughs) is that, yes, evil will be dealt with. But in his mercy and in his justice, not yet. And that's for our benefit. So let me tie it all together, hopefully, um, in one closing image. If you were to think of perhaps the worst display of evil in human history, probably the top of the list, or I would hope in the top three, is the Holocaust, right? Um, And at the height of that, in France, in, in, the, in the full weight of Nazi, Nazi occupation in France, basically most of the French fell into two camps. Um, either one was cooperation. It was kind of a, and this is where the prime minister was at that time. We'll go along to get along. He was still able to exercise his power and control as long as he carried out the things that the Nazis wanted him to do. And then on the other side were those who wanted active resistance. Let's take arms, let's figure out how to try to stand in resistance to those who are in our midst, that stand for what we do not. And then there was this one-third small group in a tiny little town southeast of Paris called La Chambon. They decided passive resistance was the way to go. So when the Jews would show up in their town, um, they would take them in. Now, I I fail to mention that this little French town knew persecution. They were French Huguenots. Basically, they were were Protestants in a predominantly Roman Catholic country. And so they knew what it was like to be on the fringes. So when the French showed up, or the, the Jews showed up into their town, they just took them in. These are just simple farmers. And they would take them in their homes, and they would feed them, and they would care for them. And when the Nazis would show up, they would hide them. And as the war dragged on and orphans showed up in their towns, they built schools and orphanages. And there's black and white photos at the height of the most heinous part of human history of kids in the fields of La Chambon playing soccer as though nothing else were going on. They had found a way to preserve their innocence in the most uh, unbelievable way. And so after the war was over, you can imagine, historians, everyone, what in the world went on there? 5,000 Jewish souls were saved in this tiny little farm town in the hills outside of Paris. So they went in, they asked all these questions, The a documentary, it'll be re-released pretty soon, I imagine, um, about it. And they asked them, why did you do this, interviewing these farmers? And they just said, well, it's what we do. And everyone, well, I mean, that's not what everyone does. I mean, what do you, I mean, there's, what's the secret sauce? And, and they looked at their history, and they said, well, every day we gather around Scripture, and we read, and we discuss. This is our rhythm of life. And we go to worship together in a small town every single week. And so when they were called to action for their faith, they rose to the occasion not because they mustered extraordinary strength, but because of all the little patient moments that they had discussed and worked out, so that when they were challenged, they embraced it, embodied it, and thought nothing otherwise. It was just their ordinary goodness shone through because of their faith in Christ Jesus. It's incredible. That's what we're called to be. That's why we're given the time that we have. That's what Jesus came to not only save us from, but for. And that's the promise we look toward. So as we reflect on these things, and as we look to the fall and getting back into routines, Might I ask you to hold before you what does the ordinary goodness of God look like in my life in small ways? How am I going to embrace it? How am I going to submit to it? It's a patient and slow work, but we have the promise of the one who will set all things right. And as Jesus says, let those who have ears, let them hear. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.